The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. My name is Ian Fisher, and I'm guest hosting today's episode on a rainy Thursday here in Palo Alto. It's sort of the kind of weather that almost makes you forget you live in California. Fortunately, I can still taste the in and out I had for lunch, so I'm feeling friendly grounded in sunshine. Last week, we brought you a replay of our most popular show, Is It Better to Get an A in a College Prep Course or a B in an Honors Course? If you missed that episode or if you'd like to hear any of our past episodes, point and click to the archives where you'll have access to every show we've ever done. We're also interested in getting your feedback as we plan for future shows. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover, we'd love to hear your ideas. We've actually gotten some really great feedback from families already uh, on topics that we can cover for the future. Um, To give us your feedback, please point and click to www.getintocollege.com forward slash survey and complete the brief questionnaire for access to two of our free guidebooks, uh, the first of which is Avoid the Pitfalls of College Essay Writing, and the second is Top 10 Ways to Find Private Scholarships. We do appreciate your feedback there. Okay, for today, we're bringing you three very different topics from three very excellent educators. We'll discuss list development with special consideration from financial safety schools. Not every school comes with the same price tag, so having some financial safety schools can make a huge difference. Uh, If you're considering attending university across the pond, our second segment will unpack the major differences between applying for admission in the U.S. and the U.K. Great tips to be had there, to be sure. But before all that, I'd like to welcome my colleague Tova Tolman to the show, a former admissions officer. Hey, how's how's it going, Tova? Um, I was just going to run down your your resume. You've got Barnard, you've got Fordham, Montclair State. You were an application reader at Columbia. I feel like just about every school in the tri-state area, you've had your hand in working in the admissions office. Does that sound about right? That's what I was trying for. All right. Awesome. (laughs) Welcome. Uh, So today, you and I are talking about the future engineer, uh, as though there is a particular type of person who will be a future engineer, but... We want to discuss a little bit about what should students should be doing through their high school career early on uh, in the meat of their high school program in 10th and 11th grade, and then just as they're sort of a, a preparing to apply for college to get ready for an engineering program. And I sort of want to start with a big philosophical question. Um, you know, we often talk about how high school students are expected to be generalists, not specialists, and Engineering also happens to be a discipline that sort of provides an exception to a lot of the pieces of advice that we give, we give families. 
So what would we say to a student who wants to be an engineer? Does that sort of big philosophical advice of being a generalist uh, go against the grain of what uh, an engineer should be looking for in their high school program? That's a really fair question. And you know, what I see in the back end of that often when I'm looking then at the transcript as the admission officer, so often you see what the thought process was of the student. Oh, I'm really interested in business, so I'm going to take all the finance and business and accounting courses that my high school offers, but, you know, I'll drop then my math and my science, and it turns out I'm only taking two core courses of that process. And the same would be considered, I'd say, a mistake for the engineer. You know, it's great to sort of gain some exposure, but not at the sacrifice of your five core courses. You still want to make sure you're taking first and primarily your four years of the five cores. Maybe pay a little extra attention to the rigor in your math and science courses. I'd say definitely make sure to take the three-year sequence of science, biology, chemistry, and physics. And if your school offers some extra opportunities to explore, great, but don't do it at the sacrifice. Do it in excess of, in addition to those core courses. At the, at the point you said you're still supposed to be a generalist and then maybe explore your interests on top of that. Right. That, I, that's great advice. And I think, you know, for, for those who are maybe the first, first-time listeners, those core courses are math, English, science, social science, and world language. And, you know, I think that the suggestion that you make here is if you think about the quality of engineering applicants, you know, they're going to have strong science and math profiles, but it's also expected that they have strengths in other subjects as well. And that can be a differentiator when you're looking at a particularly selective program. If you've got four years of language and another student doesn't, but you have similar math and science exposure, that might make a difference in the admissions process. Are there any reasons that you would specialize or take, you know, special engineering courses. We see a lot more high schools doing that these days, yeah. offering something in engineering at the high school level. Uh, yeah. Why might yeah. I choose to do that? Well, the flip side of all this, and this is where you know, you're struggling and, and striving to find a balance here, is that you do want to be able to answer, you know, first and foremost for yourself, why engineering? Do I know what engineering is? <laughs> How often you know, are we talking with families who yeah. the, the student says, I want to major in engineering, but they don't really know what that is or what that entails. So definitely you want to be able to touch engineering in some shape or form or way. So if your high school does offer some sort of computer science courses or engineering courses, absolutely consider those and see if you can pursue them as electives uh, instead of maybe a free period or a different elective, maybe instead of the finance course or perhaps instead of a, an extra art course or whatever it is your, your schedule will allow for. Absolutely. You do want to be able to answer some of those questions about why you're interested in engineering not just for your, yourself, but also then for the colleges down the road, you are certainly going to have that opportunity to share what it is you want to major in and why, and to be able to point to some of those course or academic experiences can be really helpful, both for your own questions and then for your college applications later on. 
Yeah, that's great advice. And I think for a lot of these fairly complex and, and time-intensive and rigorous dip- disciplines, that tends to be the case. I mean, there are a lot of students that say that they want to be doctors, but not a lot of students that have invested time and energy in uh, extracurricular activities related to medicine. And the same thing is true of engineering. You know, you want to get some exposure to that particular discipline. It's not just about saying it involves math, it pays well, that's what I'm going to do. I think you've got to understand a little bit more of the subtleties there. Um, There are a a lot more, you know, sort of as I'm doing travels up into the Pacific Northwest around Microsoft and and Seattle and and looking around and seeing some other schools, there are a lot more high schools now that are engineering focused or that offer an engineering track. If I'm choosing high schools and I see an option like an engineering track that's available and I have an inclination that that's what I'd like to study, is it a smart idea to look at that type of a program is it a neutral idea? Is it, ba- is it a bad idea to consider that kind of school? Sure, yeah. Well, I'd, I'd say it's certainly not a bad idea to consider it. Um, I'd say neutral or potentially a good idea, depending on your interests. Uh, it should be like any other decision as you weigh your high school options and you consider what your choices are. You want to weigh what your priorities are, what your interests are, what's being available to you. Keep in mind, the colleges are going to want you to take their engineering courses. So, sure, you might want to gain some exposure, but you'll still need to take whatever that engineering class is at that college. So, the fact uh, if you haven't taken biomedical engineering in high school isn't going to necessarily hurt you, especially if your high school doesn't offer it. Don't forget, as as I know you remember well, when we were reading applications and when we were looking at those high schools, we were always looking to see what was the context from which the student was applying. We couldn't hold it against a student for not having taken a course that their high school didn't offer. So I wouldn't say that they're going to be any better than your regular high school. But some of the pros that you might want to consider is that they might offer some additional internship or club or extracurricular opportunities that your standard high school wouldn't offer. You'll be surrounded perhaps by other students with similar interests, and therefore there might be some of those uh, outside-of-classroom opportunities that, that could be pretty great. So you'll gain more exposure, but not having it isn't necessarily a bad thing. It could be a good thing to consider. Make sure, though, again, it's not going to be at the expense of your core courses that you mentioned, uh, but it's one of those awesome specialized schools that has it in excess of, in addition to, as one of those tracks uh, to to consider. Yeah, and I I really want to emphasize that point that you made in the middle because I think it's such an important one. You know, as admissions officers, we're not tracing back the full educational history and every choice that a student had in terms of where they chose to attend school. No right. admission officer is going to say, when you were an eighth grader, you had the option of going <laughs> to this high school or that school, and you made the wrong choice for us. Um, you're always evaluated within the context of the high school that you attend, that you have chosen to attend. And so passing up on that engineering school isn't going to make you any worse off from an admission right. standpoint of getting into an engineering program except for some of those other things that you talked about, you know, with respect to additional outside of the classroom experiences. Mm-hmm. So that sort of takes us into this question of extracurricular activities. Um, and because engineering is so infrequently included as a part of the curriculum, I think a lot of the exposure you get to it is extracurricular by definition. 
Um, what, what are you sort of aiming for when you're trying to develop an extracurricular program with engineering? What are you looking to do? Sure. I think a lot of it should be sort of intrinsically motivated to help you answer the question for yourself. What is engineering and why am I interested in it? If it's something that you think you might want to explore, great. Look into some of those opportunities to give you a way to touch it, to experience it, to answer what kind of engineering. Do I understand what the difference of civil versus mechanical versus is computer science part of engineering in some worlds it is and in some worlds it isn't and why might I be able to answer that question for myself? So I think what you're looking, the goal sort of is to be able to touch it, understand it, and identify what you want so that, yeah, sure, the, then the extrinsic motivation of that down the road can be able to help the college to see that exposure and that experience, help them see that you are quite interested in engineering from an informed perspective. You, you have had experiences that show you you know, this really is something that I want to be doing. I've, I've actually gotten my feet wet in it. I've shadowed. I've experienced. I've had some of those opportunities. And uh, I'd say both sides of that coin are really what you're seeking and what you're after uh, in, your, in those extracurricular opportunities. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that engineering is not just a single pillar as a discipline. It's, it's not... Right. Is that there are so many different versions of what you know engineering is, whether you're an environmental engineer or a petroleum engineer or a computer engineer, um, civil engineer. There are so many different things that you can do. And you know, determining a little bit of the subtleties between those disciplines or, or the major differences can help you to find something that's going to fit for you. You know, our, our colleague uh, Becky just the other day, Becky Leichling was saying that for a, a future engineer, she would love to see him, you know, spending a summer doing Habitat for Humanity and just building, you know, constructing things, um, getting their hands dirty, because that's a lot of what a certain type of engineer does. And if you can demonstrate that kind of enthusiasm, that really shows a connection to uh, to the engineering discipline, even if it doesn't immediately make sense that, you know, Habitat for Humanity is connected to engineering. Um, I think that's a great point because there isn't really one right way. You know, uh, you could say, hey, a student interested in in science research needs to be doing science research, working in a lab and actually doing real research. Uh, But as you said, there are so many different ways. There is no right way. You know, having a curiosity and exploring that curiosity it can be demonstrated in so many different outlets. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that should be empowering for students. You should feel excited about that. Um, one of my closest friends uh, told me that, you know, he had graduated college and basically realized that he thinks like an engineer, that the way that he solves problems is like the way an engineer solves the problems. That didn't tell him what kind of problems he wanted to solve. That was informed more by his interests. But it's, you know, sort of thinking about what the style of your problem solving is can help you to then address the issues that really matter to you. Um, when we do talk about extracurricular programs, you know, there's that, those huge, huge opportunities every summer where students can you know, develop some sort of interest that they might not have time to do during the academic year. How do you go about looking for summer opportunities in engineering um, wherever you're located in the country? That's a, that's a good 
question and a great point. You, know, you certainly can always begin small in your own area, as we were just saying. There's no right way to do it. Sometimes it's about looking for some of those self-created opportunities to explore or to shadow right there within your own community. Or perhaps you're looking for something that's more structured and designed, a program to participate in. And there's some some big ones out there that uh, have great lists and resources. Uh, John Hopkins Center for Talented Youth uh, Imagine Journal has a lot of uh, resources and um, uh, search options for locating those opportunities. Uh, Stanford's Office of Science Research, uh, Science Outreach has another list. MIT's summer program listing is also a great resource. Um, And there are also all kinds of competitions. So those, those programs I mentioned are often summer week-long or a couple week-long intensives at a campus, often sleepover, sometimes not, where you're taking courses. Uh, they're typically structured academic programs. But then there are also some great competitions that can be organized through companies and colleges. Uh, Intel always has competition. Stevens Institute of Technology has a great famous competition as well. And there are lists of uh, competitions out there. Frankly, sometimes you begin by just punch it into your favorite search browser, engineering opportunities for high yeah. school students or summer opportunities. It can be that simple. Yeah, there. that's right. Yeah. And, and one of the things you mentioned earlier on about choosing sort of a school with a specific engineering track is that it can be really great to be around other students who are interested in engineering. And look, not a lot of kids have that in their hometown. You know, they might want to be engineers, but it's something that not a lot of their friends are into. These summer programs can be a great way to meet other kids, to ask them about the competitions that they're doing, to collaborate. Um, it's more than just sort of showing up for the program and adding that to your resume. And I think that you know, the real value is in the experience that you have there. That's right. Um, any other sort of advice that you would give to students as they're thinking about the shape of their application as an engineering student? You know, they, they've chosen their courses, they've done their core curriculum, they've gotten involved here and there. Are there any sort of, uh, you know, closing recommendations that you would give for, um, you know, a rising senior uh, over the summer to just sort of say, this is how you want to put these things together and, and really think about your your objectives? Uh, you know, I, I look back at our general messaging that we talk a lot about is building and shaping some sort of consistent message across your application, thinking about how these pieces all add up together. And, you know, avoiding spending all your time, uh, let's say, in, in the newspaper room, in, uh, in a journalism internship, uh, and, and shadowing uh, a, a writer, and then all of a sudden applying to an engineering program and talking about your passion for engineering. Instead, nice. you want to point to and look at what you've done that can help answer why engineering and, and answer it for yourself. If this and is an interest of yours, explore it. Right. If, you're, if you find yourself in the journalism room day after day, you should probably go into journalism. I mean, don't try and force <laughs> it into engineering. If that's what you like exactly. to do, that's what you like to do. So, you know, as, as always, sort of follow your instincts and, and look to the things that you love as, as a way of helping to develop that application, right? You come first, the application comes second as a representation. Exactly. Great. Uh, thanks a lot, Tova. Thanks for coming out. This was really pleasure, useful. Ian. Yeah, glad to have you. Um, We've got to take a quick break, but don't go away. When we return, we'll be unpacking the UCAS application, the common app for higher education in the United Kingdom. Stick around.
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Tune in to the Patricia Raskin Show on voiceamerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to the Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. Uh, I'm very excited because our next guest on the show is a first-time guest on the show. Uh, Lauren Randall is one of the newest members of the College Coach team, and she comes to us with experience on both sides of the desk, in college admissions at Georgetown University and in high school counseling at both Malvern Prep and the Canadian International School of Hong Kong. Welcome, Lauren. Thanks so much for having me, Ian. I'm really excited to have you on the show and, and really excited to unpack uh, the UCAS application, which Me is too. the the program right that students are using when they want to apply for for higher ed in the UK, um, and you know we have, might have some listens, listeners out there who want very specific tips. We might have some listeners out there whose ears perked up and say, "Hey, you know maybe education in the UK would be an interesting experience." Uh, for those who are maybe a little less familiar, um, what are some of the major differences between education in the UK and the US? Why would a student choose uh, to go to the UK for higher ed? That's a great starting point. Um, And you know what's funny is when I worked in Hong Kong at an international high school, uh, I had an equal number of students who went to study in the US as they did in the UK. But I was in a constant debate with my colleague over which system, the US or the UK, was better, quote, unquote. And, you know, I had work, worked in admissions in the U.S., and he had worked in admissions in the U.K., so our, our debate was hilariously biased. But, of course. So now that I, you know, no longer work with him, I can admit 
that neither system is inherently better. Both okay. countries can boast of having some of the highest ranked and regarded universities in the world. So while neither one is necessarily better, one system absolutely could be better for a particular student. Right. So w- when we're thinking about the UK student, you know, I'm, let's say I have some, somebody comes into my office and they mention the UK, what are some of the indicators that would tell me that maybe the UK system is going to be better for this particular kid? First and foremost, that student must know what they want to study from the get-go when they get to uni. And that's what we, we call, or they call the university in the UK. It's, it's uni. So okay. if that student knows absolutely what they want to study, they are incredibly passionate, and there is no deviation from that course. So, you know, there are some programs in the, in the UK that might be similar in nature to the interdisciplinary liberal arts focus in the U.S., But really, for the most part, students are going to pick a course. That's what they call it, not a major. It's a course. They're going to pick a course, and they're going to study it in depth for three years only. So there's not this kind of cushy first year or two like there is in the U.S. where students can just explore their interests or take a core curriculum before they figure out what they want to major. So they must be committed to that course. And, you know, it's almost kind of the reverse in the U.S. Here we see students to pick a college first and then the subject, whereas in the UK, that course is more important than a particular college. Right. And in the U.S., it might even be, you might be better off not knowing. I mean, it might be a detriment to know exactly what you want to study because you don't get to take quite as many electives. You're a little bit more narrow in your focus. And I will say that with students that I've talked to that are interested in the UK or that bring up the subject, once I tell them that, that they need to know what they want to study, that essentially ends the conversation <laughs> because they say, okay, I sure. have no idea what I want to study. Yeah. And so they move back on to the U.S. So I think that's kind of the, the deciding factor. Either they get so excited about the thought of studying nothing else but that one subject, or they absolutely panic and say, how could I possibly know what I want to do at 17 years old? Right. Right. Um, or in my case, at 30 years old. So, um, <laughs> so exactly. Let's say we know, okay, we know what we want to study, and, and the UK sounds like it's right for us. So let's get into some of the nuts and bolts of the, the differences between these two systems. And there are big differences in terms yeah. of how applications are evaluated and how admissions decisions are made. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the role of grades and scores. You know, here in the US, it's all about the transcript, right? Your grades, your performance, and your courses. What's sort of the big piece of the admissions decision in the UK? Sure. It is all about suitability for that course of study. So, yes, you're right. In, in the U.S., first and foremost, they're looking at that overall, the transcript. But many, many colleges here practice what we call a holistic review. They're looking at the whole picture, the whole package of the student and the application and trying to make sure that they're the right fit for their college campus, not right. necessarily just a, a course of study. So the holistic review that the U.S. uses it is not used that same way in the UK. They, the UK does not ask to see a list of extracurricular activities, and they are not trying to uh, assess how likable you are in terms of fitting in on their campus. They're simply looking at you solely in terms of your suitability for the course that you indicated that you want to study. Gotcha. And, and so, you know, I've heard then that that means that 
the results of my scores, maybe on AP or IB exams or even on SAT subject tests, are more important than my grades in my classes. Is that right? Definitely. And, you know, the UCAS system um, has very clear guidelines on what expectations there are for requirements. So they're going to list out what classes you must have had and specifically what scores. And they really are looking mostly to those APs or IBs um, that are going to be the best predictor of your success um, in that particular course. So, you know, they're not going to say something like, you know, her scores are a little low, but she's just so great at the violin, we have to admit her. You know, that doesn't happen there. They're going to tell you what you need to get and you better have it if you're going to be a competitive applicant. So in some ways, is it, you get a clearer idea of your fitness for admission just from the get-go because you can see what the minimum requirements are going to be from a school. Absolutely. There is, there is not that same level of unpredictability um, that we have in the U.S. So, yes, it's still very competitive. And just because you meet the minimum requirements doesn't mean you're going to get in, but sure. you have a better idea. On, on what your chances are, I would say, overall, than you do in the U.S. Great. Okay. So so now we know a little bit more about some, the differences between the U.S. and the U.K. in terms of their, um, excuse me, in terms of their educational philosophy. We've got a better idea of what the differences are in the evaluation. Now, the U.K. has its own version of sort of the common app, right? Um, or at least that's mm-hmm. my understanding. Is, is, that, is that right? Where can we find that and how do we use it? That's right. And I think I I even already mentioned it. It's called UCAS, U-C-A-S. It stands for Universities and Colleges Admissions Services. You can find it at UCAS, U-C-A-S dot com. That website is going to be your best friend if you apply to the UK. It is extremely helpful with tutorials. It's very user-friendly with how-to guides. Everything you need is there. And it absolutely is similar in concept, I would say, to the, the U.S.'s Common App in that it allows you to apply once rather than to each college individually. So you fill out that form and then the colleges have access to that. It's kind of one and done. Um, that's the spirit of the Common App, I would say, is, is similar to the spirit of the UCAS application. Now, in the Common App, I can load up as many schools as I want or as many as the Common App system will hold. There's no limit on how many schools I apply to. That's different in the UK, right? Majorly different. So unlike the Common App, the application number is limited with UCAS. You can apply up to five schools only. So they're telling you five is it, and you better choose appropriately because you only get five. And it should be noted that one of those five can be Oxford or Cambridge, but you can't apply to both. So they're limiting it even further. They're saying our two most selective universities, you have to choose one. It would be like Common App saying, well, choose between Harvard and Yale. You can't apply to both. And I, I, I kind of love that, actually. I love the idea that they're basically saying you can't be a good fit for both of these schools. We're very different. You choose one or the other. Um, and there's something that's kind of refreshing about that, um, that I like about that. So, all right, so we've got the UCAS, the UCAS system. It's, it, and it, Lauren is right. It is so helpful. I mean, you can go in there. They have videos on how to use the system. It's really, really user-friendly. There's a lot of great tutorials. Um, but, but there are some major differences on the application itself. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the recommendation, 
is a totally different type of document than it is in the U.S. And they would call the recommender something totally different. The, the referee, right, is, is the, the person referee. that's speaking exactly. your behalf. Exactly. <laughs> yep. So it's not somebody that's officiating a, a sporting event, but this is the person who's helping to describe your fitness for a course of study in the U.K. Yes, that's correct. And there's only one allowed. So unlike the common app where you might have two teachers and a counselor, you have one total referee for the UCAS. And that is your your recommendation. And in that recommendation, they, again, are only looking for that person to speak towards your fit for the course of study. So if you have your teacher write about you know, if the teacher writes about how charming you are or that you're always to class on time, it really doesn't matter. There, this is not a character content letter that, like we see in many of, of, of our U.S. letters of recommendation. So there gotcha. is definitely a big difference. I want to make one more note about a major difference between the UCAS and the common application. And it's when we're talking about those five colleges and what they see. Sure. So while I said that, you know, the colleges all have access to that main form. The Common App has ways to tailor that application towards some of the, co- the colleges that you apply to. So there might be things like supplemental essays or college-specific essays. You need to know that if you're applying to UCAS, the five colleges you choose, they see exactly, word for word, the same thing. Supplemental essays or college-specific questions don't exist with UCAS. So you can't apply to a different course. You can't apply to a math course at one UK school and an English course at another because your your personal statement or your, your statement of purpose will be ri- only one, right? You can't cover both math and English on both exactly. of, on that essay. Exactly. Now, you can, you know, there are subtle differences um, with course names at, at different colleges. So you, you have a little bit of flexibility, but you are not going to be a, a serious applicant if you check off math at, at University X and then write your entire essay about the desire to study literature. It, you simply won't be competitive. Yeah, something of a non-starter, I would think. Exactly. So the essay is, is, I think, probably, I mean, it's the area that gets the most attention with the U.S. system. Um, it's probably something that students are really interested in learning about with the U.K. system. But they're different, right? You're, you're certainly not going to copy and paste your Common App essay into the UCAS essay requirement. It's going to be an entirely different type of um, writing, right? So what Absolutely. are some of the major guidelines for the UCAS essay? Sure. And that was interesting that you said about copying your Common App essay into the UCAS application. So I'm going to make a very brief note that there are a handful of UK universities that do accept the Common App. Um, I, in my count, there are 16 universities that accept the Common App. But if wow. you are a serious UK applicant, I would strongly advise you not to apply with the Common App because of that essay. The Common App essay is simply not relevant to the UCAS system. So they are really different. So, so oh, if, you know, I might write a Common App essay all about, you know, how I learned uh, to believe in myself through a particular event in my life. And the UK might think that that's a lovely story, but that has nothing to do with their admissions process. Exactly. You know, 
uh, writing about overcoming failure at the the state track competition doesn't tell them why you're a good literature student. You know, it's just not relevant to their review. So the Common Up essay will not work for the for the UK application. So let's okay, so, talk about that. that yeah, that so we're write, so I'm writing something totally different. So what what do I start with? What are the nuts and bolts of what I need to hit here? Yes. So it, again, it can't be tailored to the university. It must be tailored to the course of study. First, you need to show that you are really excited about that course. You need to tell them how you got inspired to pursue it. Was it through work experience or outside reading? But you, through that excitement, you need to show that you have a solid command of what that course entails. You need to show that you know what you're getting yourself into and you're still excited about it. So that really requires a lot of research into the course, all of which can be done on the UCAP's website. So you need to do your, your homework in, a, in order to even begin your UCAP essay. So, and you had mentioned earlier that extracurricular activities are not um, a big part of the UCAS um, application process. And, you know, I'm getting getting the impression that things like track or playing in music or doing community service are not things that are relevant. What about extracurricular activities that might be connected to my course of study, like math Olympiad or um, like math research or a math camp that I went to? Let's say I'm doing a math course of study. Are those things that I would then bring up in that essay or put somewhere else in the application? Is there relevance there? Absolutely there is. So there isn't a place in the application outside of the essay to list your activities or your community service hours or whatnot. But those experiences and the skills that you've gained from those those activities or service work, that is hugely relevant to demonstrating that you have the transferable skills to be successful in the course of study. So you do need to bring up those activities, but more specifically, the skills that you've learned, whether it's communication or critical thinking or leadership or listening skills, and why is that relevant to what you want to study. So if you've done something really cool at your school, but really you can't find any kind of connection to literature, then it's probably not relevant. You need to find experiences or work or internships or outside reading or something that you've done that's tangible that gives you those skills to demonstrate that you're going to be successful, that you have the ability to handle this course. Right. It, it basically sounds more like a cover letter for a job than an admissions essay under the American Absolutely. system. Absolutely. It's all about fit for that job or course of study is, is what we're talking about. Yep. Great. Uh, thank you so much. Lauren, this is really helpful. Um, I always learn more about the UK system when I start to talk about it. So thanks a lot for stopping by. It's great to have you on the show today. It was great to be here. Thank you. All right. Well, folks, that wraps up two of our three segments today. But in the last piece of the show, we'll dive into a really important topic, developing a college list that accounts for expected financial costs and the importance of having a financial safety school. Don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Inner Revolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. My final guest today is my good friend, Kathy Ruby, uh, who is a Carleton College alumna and a former fi- uh, financial aid officer at St. Olaf, University of Minnesota, Shippensburg. Uh, she's got a lot of experience. We're really glad to have her on the show today. How are you doing, Kathy? Good. How are you, Ian? I'm doing really well. Um, we are talking about the college list today, Yeah. right? And, you know, when I talk to my uh, families about the college list, you know, from the admissions perspective, the, the key word I try and drill into them is balance, 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 balance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sort of the end of the conversation, I say, now, the balance isn't just about admissions. It's also about finance. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about safety schools, it's not just a place that you can get in. It's also it might have to do with a place that you can afford. So what would we call, you know, in the basic definition of financial safety school. Yeah, so I think a financial safety school is, is just that, a college that you think you can afford um, either based on the sticker price or what you think the net price might be. So, so it could be your in-state public university, right? So you can easily identify what that sticker price is, and that's for most people, that's going to be their financial safety. Um, but it might also be a private college that you know is going to award a lot of aid to your student, either because, you know, they offer a lot of merit scholarships um, or they offer generous need-based financial aid awards, um, which you can figure out through their net price calculator. Um, So it could be, it's usually a public university, but it can also be a private college as well, especially in states where public universities are expensive, like New Jersey. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. 
What are some of the things that I'm looking for on on awarding a lot of aid? I mean, that's something that sometimes I'll talk about with a student. I'll say, this is an an actual safety school for you, Um, which means that you're going to be above average academically, you know, compared to the typical admitted student. Um, And that might mean that you could get a, a scholarship of some sort. But we, when we're talking about finance, I think we want to get some more specific facts and figures out there, things that are a little more concrete. How do you actually assess the kind of scholarship you might be eligible for at a school that maybe is an admission safety school to determine yep. whether it's a financial safety school? Yeah, and that's, and that's the first thing is that it's an admission safety school. That's the first criteria. But um, the next is to try to figure out, okay, how much does this college, how much am I actually likely to receive from this college? And there's there's no perfect way to get at that. Um, you know, if you're a family that has financial need, you can use the net price calculator that every college is required to have. Mm-hmm. Um, another resource that we point families to is the College Board's website, um, bigfuture.collegeboard.org. Great resource. And they publish statistics for each college. The college reports numbers about their average merit scholarships or their average financial aid package. Um, but those are just averages, so they don't tell you the denominator. I think another great way to research this is actually to go to the college's website because some colleges will actually, they'll put it on a grid. You know, they'll say right up front, if your GPA is this and your test score is this, this is how much scholarship you'll receive. Great. So you ha- kind of have to approach it from a variety of angles. And, and you can actually also ask the college. Um, yeah, I was wondering about that. You just call yeah, up a financial they, aid officer and say, what do you think? What does this look like to you? Yeah, and I numbers? would even ask an admissions it, when it comes to merit scholarships, admissions officers are often even better oh. at answering that question. So I encourage people to ask during admission information sessions when they're on a tour. You know, everyone in the room will be very happy that you ask the question, do you award merit scholarships and what's the profile of a student who might receive one? Yeah, see, now I didn't know that because I, when I worked at Reed and, and still at Reed, there are no merit scholarships. And so right. people would ask me that question all the time, but I just say, no, we don't have those. Uh, so it's a pretty easy <laughs> yeah. answer for me. But to at get. colleges that have them, usually the admissions staff so the are admissions pretty well people. versed in how they're awarded too. Gotcha. Good. Now, this is this is all fairly easy. I mean, you can sit with your your partner and talk about what you can afford and sort of look into it, put the numbers out on a piece of paper, but you're not going to college, right? Your your <laughs> child's going. So right. how do you start this conversation? How do you start to talk about a financial safety school, which often is also a an admission safety school, and put it in a position where it doesn't just look like the last resort? Right. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, and I think you on the admission side struggle with this too. When we yeah. talk about safety, we make it sound like it's the least desirable outcome, right? So I think the first thing is to try to start early. This isn't a conversation that should happen, you know, in in December of the senior year. This should be something that's happening throughout high school, um, just sort of conveying this idea that the, the, the amount that we're going to pay does matter, that it's not a blank check. Um, and hopefully it's part of a broader conversation that you're, you and your family have about what your family values and how you manage your money. I mean, these are all, these are all conversations to be having with our teenagers anyway. And having raised teenagers, I understand how hard those conversations are. Um, right. But I right. think it's, you know, you've got to try not to be negative because this is really about making sure they have great choices in the end. Yeah, so would you say that it's more about sort of talking about what you can afford or really looking into 
I mean, is it something where you'd, you'd put the student on it earlier in the process, in the list building process? Um, you know, because from an admissions point of view, I really don't want parents researching the colleges and reporting back to kids, this is what you'll like. You know, you should go here. They've right. got a great study abroad program. Um, is there a way that parents can empower students to sort of look for the financial safety school in a way that will make it feel like more than just the, the last resort if the only option? Yeah, I mean, I think the way to empower um, your kids to do that is to make sure it's in the context of developing the list. So, so let's find let's find the things. Let's figure out the things that are important to you in a college. What are the things that that are important that you like? What do you want in your college experience? And then let's make sure all of the colleges on your list, even the ones we know you're going to get into and that might be the financial safety. Um, are places that you would be happy to attend. I mean, we don't want any college on your list that you don't want to go to. Um, And so empowering the student that way to try to find the colleges that could be financial safeties, but that also have the things that they want in a college, I mean, that does empower your student, I think. Yeah, and that's so important. I would stress that that piece of advice around don't apply to schools that you don't want to attend. Look, you don't have to have an equal preference for all the schools on your list. It's okay to have a number one and a number two and a number three. But don't put schools on your list just because your parents want you to. And don't put schools on your list that you really dread the thought of attending. You need to sort of have conversations that ensure that every school that's on that list is going to be a place where you would be happy. Not happiest necessarily, but places where you would be be happy. And I think that... um and the, the conversation can be, that the one that can start early is about going into the college process with an open mind. So I have a, I have a college counseling colleague who uh, often quotes an admissions person who came and talked to students and, and, said, and said, you know, I've been very happily married to my husband for many years. We've had a happy life. But I got to say, there's probably more than one guy in the world I could have <laughs> married and been happy. Yeah. <laughs> and so it, it's the same idea here, which is that there are lots of great colleges out there, and there are many colleges where you could be happy. Now, again, you may have one that you think you'll be happiest at, but there are many right. places where you can be happy. I Yeah, I use like dating and romance analogies in college admissions so frequently. Um, <laughs> my students must think I'm crazy. But, I mean, Somehow it, it works for teenagers, though, don't it, you think? Yeah, it absolutely <laughs> works. I mean, I would you know, sort of tell them, like, do you want to date the person who everybody else thinks is the best or the one that you think is the best, right? When we're talking (laughs) about college rankings or just anything around this process. I mean, really thinking about it as a match because you're basically committing to this school for four years, which is not even something you have to do when you go out on a date with somebody. That's not a four-year commitment. It might be a four-hour commitment. And so, you know, making sure that you really understand the ins and outs of what a school offers, what it's going to cost, what the expectations are. All that stuff is important um, from both an admissions and a finance side. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so you know, I hear these horror stories um, sometimes of these students get into places and their parents tell them very late that they can't afford it. Or um, maybe, you know, the student goes back on the conversation that they had where they say, yeah, we'll talk about whatever the financial safety schools are. We're getting closer and closer to that April 30th deadline where you've got to announce to schools where you plan to go. And your child wants to go to the most expensive school on the list. You know, it was a reach school. She got in. She wants to go. Yep. What can you do? I mean, what do you do? Yeah, what, what are you going to do? I know. And it's, exactly. it's hard to say, you know, it's hard to 
just come right out and say no to your kids. So let's first try educating them. Um, so I think you have to have the hard conversations about um, student debt, what's a reasonable amount of student debt. Um, and it's hard for teenagers because they haven't lived in the real world yet. So they don't understand what a Imagine what an $800 a month student loan payment is going to mean to their life. Um, but certainly there are lots of great student loan calculators out on the internet now. Um, we also suggest that families go to the Bureau of Labor Statistics has an occupational outlook handbook on the website, which I is pretty cool. I love that website. Yes, yeah. that is it's so just, awesome. Yeah, and it talks about starting salaries and it talks about what the outlook for future jobs is. Not to mention, I mean, I just think teenagers could use that resource just to open their eyes to the whole range of occupations that are out there. You know, I Um, used that resource actually uh, during the last Republican debate when Marco Rubio said that welders make more than philosophers because I studied mm -hmm. philosophy. And I went to look at what welders make and what philosophy professors make. And the Occupational Outlook Handbook has all that information. And it turns out philosophers make more. But, you know, so the Occupational Outlook Handbook has a lot of really great information based on all kinds of professions that you can get involved in. Absolutely. And then you can use it as a person who's managed a budget, as a parent. You know, you can talk through, okay, this is what this means per month. This is what it means after taxes. This is what you'll have left for rent. You may be living in our basement. Um, or on the flip side, if you make me as a parent borrow that much, I may be living in your basement someday. Um, <laughs> That's but a I great think way of putting it. One thing to remind parents is that they do have the control in this situation, because no matter what you hear in the media today um, about students borrowing too much, and certainly there are students who do, a traditional dependent undergraduate student, you know, an 18-year-old student, is actually limited to borrowing $27,000 over the course of four years from the federal government's loan program. So the federal direct loan, that's all they can get in their own name. Anything else that they have to borrow, whether it's a state loan or a private loan, um, that will have to be co-signed by somebody, generally the parent. And if it's not a private or a state loan, then the parent will have to borrow a federal parent loan. So it's really the ball is in your court as a parent because it is pretty hard for students to just pay for college on their own by borrowing today. Most traditional yeah. dependent undergraduate students can't do it. Yeah, you're not going to find $27,000 over four years for, for a college education. It's just not, it's not no. a reason. No, I mean, now, now I don't want to discourage very needy students. They may be receiving other grants and loans. Some grant money. For most middle-income and upper-middle-income families, it, the system sure. expects that parents will help. And so parents, you are in the driver's seat. Um, and you you do have the last word on which college your child attends, but you want it to be their decision. You want to bring them to that decision. You don't want to you don't want right. to declare it. So yeah, and I and I think that really sort of underscores that point around having the conversation early and often, mm-hmm. reminding students to keep that as a part of their their priority. Now, when we talk about safety schools from an admission standpoint, you know, my sort of non-negotiable with the students I work with is that I want them to have two safety schools from an admission standpoint so that, you know, if everything goes horribly wrong, they still are probably going to have two mm-hmm. schools to choose from. When it comes to a financial safety school, do you recommend having more than one? Do you recommend having three or four? What, what is, uh, how do these sort of financial aid numbers play in terms of choosing that safety? Yeah, we, we actually do recommend having more than two because sometimes if they've, if a few of them have treated you well, um, you can play them against each other, um, now, it oh, nice. doesn't always work, but sometimes you can <laughs> leverage one school's package to get more from another one. Um, so 
if you have more options, that might give you better bargaining power in the end. Um, Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Does it make sense ever to apply to a school that you are not interested in just because you think you might get an aid offer and you can leverage that? Or is that sort of a sketchy game to play? What do you think about that? Well, you can play it. It's just there's no guarantee of an outcome. Gotcha. Okay. And I wouldn't want you to detract from your, you know, the effort you're going to put into the other more important applications for you. But if it's an easy application, sure. 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 Perhaps. It won't hurt you. Great. Well, thanks, Kathy. I mean, that's very enlightening and I think really going to be helpful for me as I talk to my students and they think about their financial safety school. So uh, thanks a lot for stopping by. Happy to be here. Great. So that's all the time we have for today's show. And I, I want to thank all my guests, Kathy, Lauren, and Tova, for their thoughtfulness and their expertise. It's always great to hear from such talented people. I hope you enjoyed the conversations as much as I did. We'll be back next week with another live show hosted by Beth Heaton. So if you've missed her over the last three weeks, she'll be back. Um, there will be a medical theme for listeners as Beth and her guests dive into applications for BSMD programs and discuss what parents and students can do at this late state to triage their application process. We'll also cover entering loan repayment, which isn't so closely tied to medicine, even if it does hurt a little bit. So thanks a lot for your time. Have a really terrific weekend. And we'll see you again next Thursday at 4 Eastern, 1 Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 